All right, guys. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the 1.30 breakout time. We're going to get started here, so if you want to grab a seat, we're going to jump right into it. We have so much to cover. Again, uh, just to pre- preview this, my name is Mark Vance. I serve as a lead pastor at Cornerstone Church in Ames. Uh, prior to that, I was the Salt Company Director in Ames. Um, and so got some familiarity with a lot of the students who are in here, but if I haven't met you, good to see you guys. Thanks for being out here. This breakout session, we're going to be talking about the subject of homosexuality in the Bible. I know there will be tons of questions that you have. This is undoubtedly something that you're walking through, okay? I remember kind of prepping for this. I was reading some materials. Tim Keller wrote an article in 2013 where he said, the relationship of homosexuality to Christianity is without doubt one of the main subjects of cultural conversation in the world today. If you're a Christian in New York City, this is 2013, it is nearly impossible to talk about your faith without this subject being raised. I would say now in 2022, here's my experience. If you're a Christian and attending a major university anywhere in North America, it is impossible to talk about your faith without this subject being raised. It's the most common question that I will get really answering objections to the Christian faith, which is how can the Bible teach things that seem so harsh to people who struggle with same-sex attraction or who are gay? And so what I wanna do is try to answer some of those questions. So I know you have them, so there's a text message up on number up on the screen, 515-329-4035, that if you want, while I'm talking right now, you can be texting questions in. There'll be people who are filtering those through While I'm going through and presenting the material, I'm gonna go as fast as I can humanly possibly do that and still give you some degree of intellectual rigor and clarity. And then at the end of that, I'll go through as many of the questions as I can get. I will not give full enough answers for the depth of question that you're gonna ask because I'm gonna attempt to limit myself to 30 to 45 seconds per answer. So just know, I know I can't go as deep as I need to go, but I think I can maybe give some help to you who are here. Because right now, all of us are living in a world where you're basically being told there's one of two things that are true. Either you celebrate and affirm or you hate and are terrified. Like it's, we're being told in the world when we come to deal with our friends and people that we know and love who struggle with same-sex attraction, maybe someone who's living inside of a homosexual lifestyle and inside of that identity, we're being told either you affirm this person or you hate this person. It's, it's a binary choice, either this or this. And the basic premise of what I'm gonna try to do today is say the choice is not that simple. For the Christian, you have to actually walk a path that is full of tension and difficulty because you cannot compromise on clear biblical convictions. You also can't compromise on a clear call to compassion. You have to hold both conviction and passion and live inside of that compassion and conviction tension. You cannot celebrate what scripture will teach against. But at the same time, scripture clearly commands us to love all men, to honor them, and especially to love our neighbor. So the question is, how do we hold to a traditional biblical sexual ethic, but yet at the same time, honor people? Is that possible? How can you live with both truth and grace. How do you follow the example of Jesus? And so what we really wanna start with today, I'm gonna try to do a very, very fast flyover of the biblical teaching on sexual morality. I'm gonna go very quickly there. And then once I've laid a biblical foundation, we're gonna start with scripture and then I'm gonna move to praxis, so very practical questions. I'm gonna talk particularly as if I were addressing some of you in this room who might struggle with same-sex attraction. And I wanna answer the question, Can you struggle with this and be a follower of Jesus? Or maybe more particularly, how, if you struggle with this, do you faithfully follow Jesus? And then I wanna answer a second set of questions, which is, what about the friend that I love? What about my sister? What about my parent who is living inside of a homosexual lifestyle? How is it that I can stay both close to them and faithful to Jesus? What can I do? We'll see what we can do in the time together. So let's start with this. What does the Bible have to say about the subject of homosexuality and biblical sexuality. And on this, I'm gonna give you four resources that will go far more in depth than anything that I can cover today. Four resources that if I pique your interest, I'm gonna refer you back to those. One book is called, What Does the Bible Really Say About Homosexuality? by Kevin DeYoung. What Does the Bible Say About Homosexuality? Kevin DeYoung. Is God Anti-Gay? It's the title of our 
breakout session, the title of a book by Sam Albury. And Sam Albury, A-L-L-B-E-R-R-Y, if you read only one person on this subject, that's the person I would commend. Sam Albury. He's a pastor in Nashville. He was a pastor in London before. And he's an adult Christian who has struggled his entire life with same-sex attraction and lived faithfully to Jesus. So he both writes from a biblically faithful position, but from a personal credibility position too when he addresses these things. Sam, in addition to multiple books he's written here, runs a website called livingout.org. Livingout.org is full of gospel-centered resources for same-sex attracted Christians. And he has been an incredible help to so many. There are videos, there are testimonies. And if you've never explored that, it's an incredibly potent and helpful resource for you. The final book I'm gonna give you is what I think is the most important book ever written in the English language on the subject of sexuality in the Bible. It's a book titled Holy Sexuality by Christopher Yuan. Y-U-A-N, Christopher Yuan. Christopher Yuan is a Bible teacher at Moody Bible Institute, but prior to that lived an active homosexual lifestyle, actually this HIV positive individual connected to that lifestyle that he lived inside of for a very, very long time. And so now he came to Christ, studied theology, and is writing actively on the subject of sexuality. His book, Holy Sexuality in the Gospel, is the best book ever written on human sexuality from a Christian perspective. And if you want to go in depth, that's the one to get. Okay. Now, if you got a Bible or an app, I'm going to be flipping you around to various passages because the first thing I want to talk about is this. Here's the the question that I often get. What does the Bible really say about homosexuality? And here's the way the question is phrased to me by people who are skeptical about the traditional Christian sexual morality or teaching. They'll say something like this. Really, if you look at it, the Bible only talks about homosexuality in five verses. Jesus never addresses it. So since Jesus doesn't teach about it, and there's only five verses in it, why would we make such a big deal when the Bible is largely silent? That's the way the question was posed to me. That's a very good question. It's a very good question. And so what I wanna admit which is, what is true about the question is this. There are only five specific Bible passages that talk directly to the question of homosexuality. There's the passage of Genesis 19 regarding Sodom and Gomorrah. There's Leviticus 18 and 20 that talk about disordered sexual relationships. Then if you turn to the New Testament, it's Romans chapter one, particularly verses 26 and 27, 1 Corinthians chapter six, verses nine through 11, and 1 Timothy chapter one. Now, those are the texts. We will go over each one of those, by the way. But here's, here's a question I wanna ask you. Let's, let's, let's approach this from a little different perspective as we try to answer this objection. How many of you guys are uh, super pro-polygamy? Don't raise your hands. Like, like you're super into the idea of having multiple wives, multiple husbands. Can I ask this? How many times does the New Testament explicitly forbid polygamy? Do you know how many? It actually doesn't address polygamy. The closest it gets to it is Jesus talks about like Herod marrying his, uh, and John the Baptist confronts Herod for like marrying his brother's wife. That's maybe the closest we get to it. That's not really polygamy. That's like a near relative sexual relationship. It doesn't talk about polygamy. How many times does it talk about it in the Old Testament? Really only a couple of times. So Here's a question. I mean, if you think about it, guys, polygamy is only mentioned like two times, three times explicitly in the Bible. So why in the world do we make such a big deal about it when the Bible doesn't really talk about it at all? You see, now that, why is it that when I asked that question about homosexuality, that seemed like, yeah, that is a pretty credible argument. But when I flipped it to polygamy, it didn't make any sense to you. It's because actually your issues aren't primarily driven by a lack of biblical evidence, they're primarily driven by a cultural phenomena. It is not popular to like polygamy, so you feel no pressure to think about it. But it's the same basic biblical argument. And in both cases, both of those arguments entirely miss the point. So it sounds smart, but it is intellectually incredibly naive. And I know no thoughtful biblical scholar in the world who would accept that line of argument as proving the point of homosexuality. Why? Because here's the big deal. The question we need to ask is not, what does the Bible explicitly forbid every time? The question we need to ask more fundamentally is what does the Bible actually say about sexuality? 
because the Bible says a lot about a vision of what sexuality is about. In fact, the storyline of scripture begins with one man and one woman put together inside of a relationship in the garden. And so from the opening pages of scripture to the end of scripture, which ends with a wedding between Christ and his church in heaven, the Bible tells a consistent story of scripture, uh, of sexuality. So here's the point. The single most potent argument for a biblical version of sexuality has nothing to do with the five passages that forbid homosexuality. Even if we didn't have them, we would still have a compelling case for sexual expression being ordered and designed by God in creation to be between one man, one woman committed together inside the confines of marriage. So before we look at the five texts, we first need to consider the most important biblical argument, which is the entire storyline of scripture. So if you have a Bible, let's go to Genesis chapter one. Genesis chapter one. The point I'm making here is very, very important. The most important biblical point is not any of the five texts that explicitly talk about homosexuality. The most important biblical point to make is the point about God's design and order in his creation. How did he design sexuality to work? That is the single most important biblical point to consider, and it's the one most people miss entirely. So, Genesis chapter one, God is creating everything. I want you to see Genesis chapter one, verse 26. When God says, let us make man in our image according to our likeness, they'll rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. Then God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. We're gonna pause there. God looks at a man and a woman that he made in his image and he says to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. It means more than just have sexual relationships that produce babies, be fruitful and multiply means more than that, but it doesn't mean less than that. God could not look at Adam and fill and give to men that command, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth because inside of the homosexual relationship, there is not a proper ordered pair to produce life. I'm gonna give you a quote here from Tim Keller on this biblical vision in Genesis one. He says, in Genesis one, you see pairs of different but complementary things that are made to work together. There is heaven and earth, sea and land, even God and humanity, light and dark. You see the pairings? That same pairing relationship is part of the brilliance of God's creation in all of its diversity, that unlike things are actually made to unite and to create dynamic holes that generate more and more life and beauty. N.T. Wright points out the creation and uniting of male and female at the end of Genesis 2 is the climax of this pattern. This means that male and female have unique non-interchangeable glories. They see and do things that the other cannot. Sex was created by God to be a way to mingle those unique strengths and glories within a lifelong covenant of marriage. Marriage is the most intense, though not the only place in which the reunion of male and female takes place in human life. Male and female reshape, learn from, work together. Therefore, in one of the great ironies of late modern times, When we celebrate diversity in so many other cultural sectors, we have truncated the ultimate unity to diversity in God's created design, intergendered marriage between a male and a female. It is God's basic diversity equation. God made male and female. Now I'm gonna go to Sam Albury's book, Is God Anti-Gay? I'm gonna read this quote here. He says, while homosexuality is not mentioned all that often, the biblical vision for the union of different genders in sexual union inside of marriage is one of the main themes in scripture. It is quite frankly everywhere. The book of Genesis begins in chapters one through three. Jesus will pick up on this teaching. When Christ says, what God has joined together, let not man separate, he is quoting back to God's design and created order. One man, one woman, one flesh for life. That is God's basic equation. All throughout the Bible, heterosexual marriage is the standard human construct that is most often used to reveal truths about how God relates to his people. Think of Ephesians chapter five, 
where he says, actually, when I'm telling you about the marriage between man and a woman, I'm actually speaking about a greater reality. This speaks about Christ and his church. The Bible begins with the wedding of a man and a woman, Genesis chapter two. It ends with one in Revelation chapter 19. So here's the big point. The biblical equation consistently taught in every passage of scripture and never contradicted is that God's design for human sexuality is one man, one woman, one flesh inside one confines, namely the bounded zone of marriage. That same storyline of sexual expression is endorsed everywhere in scripture and is never taught against anywhere in scripture. It is the storyline of sexuality in the Bible. Whenever sexual expression in the Bible is mentioned happening outside of that normative bounded equation, one man, one woman, one flesh for life, whether it would be adultery, where the wrong partner in the equation is introduced, or polygamy, where it is not one plus one, but one plus three, homosexuality, even the more perverse forms, the bestiality forms. What's the problem with bestiality? It's because the unitive equation doesn't put together. It's not one way and one woman. The equation cannot add together to produce life. Whenever sexual expression occurs outside the one man, one woman, one flesh for life equation, it is never endorsed and always condemned in scripture, period, every single time. So what's my point, Salt Company? My point is that the consistent testimony of scripture is the single most important biblical point when it comes to how we order sexuality. Everything we think about sexuality comes off of that basic foundation. So what we're not trying to do to make a case about either for or against homosexuality is look for the specific texts that only explain homosexuality. The first and primary and most important thing we have to do is ask the question, what does God say about sex to begin with? What's his design? What's his order? So with that biblical foundation laid, now you have the proper context in which to read the five passages that we mentioned. I'm gonna read through them. Won't read every verse, but I'm gonna mention each one of them so you can go back through and look at them. Here are the five key passages. The first is in the Old Testament, Genesis chapter 19. If you wanna turn there, it is a sordid account of Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham has heard that the evil of Sodom and Gomorrah has come up to the world, that God, God plans to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And so, but Abraham pleads, his, son, his nephew Lot lives in Sodom and Gomorrah. He says, God, would you spare it if there were some righteous people? And he says, I'm not gonna spare it unless there's this many. So eventually God sends angelic messengers to go to Lot to plead with him to leave. And as these angelic messengers, two men show up in Lot's house, it says, Genesis 19 verse four, that before these two messengers from outside went to bed, the men of the city of Sodom, both young and old, the whole population surrounded the house. They called out to Lot and they said to him, where are the men who came to you tonight? Send them out to us so that we can have sex with them. There's a perverse instance where instead of the standard ancient Near Eastern practice of of, uh, hospitality to those who would be outsiders who come into the community, Instead, they're extending not hospitality, but violence in the form of homosexual gang rape. Now, does Leviticus 19, standing alone, make the entirety of the case against homosexuality in the Bible? No. So I would never make an entire case. I'm simply saying that what is forbidden here is not just the instance of violent, sexually abusive homosexuality, but it is part of an ongoing practice that led to the destruction of Sodom itself, that Sodom itself is a picture of sexual morality gone wrong. But you couldn't make a whole case for this off of that. You'd need more. So let's go forward. Leviticus chapter 18 and chapter 19. Both of these passages, Leviticus 18, 22 and Leviticus 20, verse 13, are uh, talk about the question of homosexuality inside the same basic structural like line of reasoning. They're inside of texts that are talking about all sorts of sexual relationships that are forbidden under the law codes of ancient Israel. They're saying, in, in particular, these come inside of saying like, you cannot marry your, your father's wife. You cannot have incestuous relationships. You cannot have relationships sexually with an animal. They're saying, remember, God's ordered pair, man, woman, one flesh, for life. Anything that goes outside of that, Leviticus 18 and 20 
kind of in, to be frank, disgustingly descriptive detail, tell you all the things you cannot be doing sex with, all right? And one of them, Leviticus 18.22, says this, you shall not lie, lay down with a male as with a woman. It is detestable or an abomination. Same sort of phraseology occurs in Leviticus chapter 20, verse 13. If a man lies with a man as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall be put to death. Their blood is upon them. So let's hit pause. Can you make an entire case off this? Well, some people say, well, look, Mark, clearly we're only applying one part of the verse because last I checked, we shouldn't stone people who have a different sexual expression than the biblical norm. And I would say, yes, there are clearly passages in Leviticus that are not true in like their normative expression for everyone and every time. This is talking about some boundaries inside the nation of Israel. But the boundaries of what made a law for Israel can be derived from something that is a universal moral principle that extends beyond the people of Israel. And I think it is actually the sexual expression principle that is the underlying one, not the put to death the offender principle that is the underlying one that was instituted largely because this is preparing them to go into the place of Canaan. Again, Simply put, it's saying, this is an abomination. It is outside of God's order. I want to underline this, though. That word abomination, it doesn't say homosexual practice only is an abomination. In fact, in Leviticus 18, verse 26, after it lists all of the different sexual practices that are forbidden by God, it says, do not commit any of these abominations. That means adultery is an abomination. So it's not like we have a separate class of sexual sin, namely homosexuality, that is different from or worse than all other types of sexual, that's not it at all. And that's never what the Bible teaches. But it is saying this is one of the class of sexual sins that are forbidden for God's people. Why? Because it goes against God's created order design of one man, one woman, one flesh for life inside the confines of marriage. Turn to the New Testament, Romans chapter one going to read these verses out loud. They're, they're pretty important in making this case. Romans chapter 1. I want you to look particularly at verses 26 to 27. Inside of Romans 1, Paul is making the argument that uh, he, it's part of a section of the book of Romans where Paul's making the argument that all people stand underneath the judgment of God for their sin. It, this section in Romans kind of culminates in Romans 3.23 where it says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so Paul is making the argument that every person from every culture, no matter who they are, is a sinner and under God's judgment apart from Jesus. In Romans 2, Paul takes on Jewish people who have the law of God and have written it. He says, you, you break the very laws that you know. But in Romans chapter 1, he goes back to the Gentile, the pagan world, people who don't worship the God of the Bible. And he says, listen, there's something revealed to every person everywhere through the order of creation that even though we know we should worship this God who is there, we don't do it. In fact, we do something very different from the worship of the one true God. We create idols. We worship the creation rather than the creator. Let's pick up Paul's line of argument in verse 24. Romans chapter one, verse 24. Therefore God delivers them over in the desires of their hearts to serve sexually impurity so that their bodies are degraded among themselves. They exchange the truth of God for a lie. And they worshiped and served what has been created instead of the creator who is praised forever, amen. It is for this reason that God delivered them over to disgraceful passions. Their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. The men in the same way also left natural relations with women and were inflamed in their lust for one another. Men committed shameless acts with other men and received in their own persons the appropriate penalty of their error. And because they did not think it was worthwhile to acknowledge God, God delivered them over to a corrupt mind so that they would do what is not right. They are filled with all sorts of unrighteousness, evil, greed, and wickedness. They're full of envy, murder, quarrels, deceit, and malice. They're gossips, slanderers, God-haters, arrogant, proud, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, senseless, untrustworthy, unloving, and unmerciful. Although they know God's just sentence, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they applaud others who practice them. Here's the flow of logic in Romans 1. Homosexual desire is not fitted to God's design. This is key here. And all other desires that lead us towards sin are not fitted to God's design. So Paul doesn't single out homosexual practice as a worse type of sin than all other type of sins. 
He singles it out as a clear example to prove a broader point. Paul's broad point is this. Everything we long for apart from God's created good is leading us toward sin. Sam Albury writes this. It illustrates something that's the case for all of us here. As we reject God, we find ourselves craving what we're not naturally designed to do. Even those who desire heterosexual sex find themselves doing so in a way that does not fully accord with the creator's design for sex. There's no grounds in this passage for singling out homosexual people for any sort of special condemnation. The passage is an indictment of every one of us everywhere because our distorted desires are a sign that we have turned away from God's design. Homosexuality is one of those displays and is one that Paul can make because in case in point, it is very clearly disordered from the creator's design. It's a clear example. The creator designed it one man, one woman, one flesh for life. Therefore, one man plus one man is clearly outside of God's design. I'll continue to quote here from Sam Albury. The presence of same-sex desire in some of us is not an indication we've turned away from God more than any others. It's a sign rather that the whole of creation and humanity has done so. It is not the only sign, and in everyone there are no doubt more than one sign or another, but it is a sign that human nature is changed away from what God has originally intended. Final passage I want us to look at is 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I'm gonna have us look at this one. We could go to 1 Timothy chapter one, verses eight to 10, but they use the same two key Greek words in 1 Timothy one as they do in 1 Corinthians six. So I'm gonna go to 1 Corinthians six because it's a bit more foundational for the teaching. 1 Corinthians six, verses nine and following. It says, don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom? So don't be deceived. No sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, or males who have sex with males. That's our key phrase. No thieves, greedy people, drunkards, verbally abusive people, or swindlers will inherit God's kingdom. And some of you used to be like this, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. In these verses, Paul is describing different kinds of people who are excluded from inheriting the kingdom of God because they refuse to repent of their sin and turn away from a practice of sin that is against Christ. He doesn't single out homosexual behavior, rather it's listed among idolatry, adultery, greed, thievery, drunkenness, as some of the sins that if we are to perpetually walk in them, we are saying, Jesus, to be a Christian means you turn away from sin and toward Jesus. Doesn't mean you're perfect, it just means you say, Jesus, this path I was walking is no longer my path. These people in this passage are saying, no, I wanna walk on this path. You can't do that and claim the name of Christ. In this case, there's a phrase here. It says, males who have sex with males. There are two Greek words underneath that phrase. The two Greek words are malakoi and are sinakoitoi. So let let me give you the definition. Malakoi, the literal word in Greek means soft ones. Our sinakoitoi is two words. Arson, which is a word for male, and coitus, which is a word for intercourse. Literally, it means man betters. The two words put together are describing the individual who is both receiving and giving inside of the homosexual bond of sex. That's what it means. So he is not describing a person who's just thinking same-sex attracted thoughts. He's describing a person who is practicing and living inside of a lifestyle of homosexual activity. That's important to note there. The translation, I don't like it when people translate this as homosexuals will not inherit the kingdom of God because it goes beyond that. It's those who are practicing and living inside of this practice of homosexuality. So same-sex sin is mentioned alongside of other wide-ranging sins, non-sexual as well as sexual. Here's the summary. In each one of these five texts, the clearest reading of the text is forbidding homosexual practice as sin. But even more broadly, it's important to put those texts inside the broader biblical context that says that the design of God's sexual ordering is one man, one woman for life inside the confines of marriage. Now, I've given you two arguments, the story of the whole of Scripture, five key texts 
But the final argument is very, very important to put on there, and that is this. When you and I come to read the Bible, we're not the first Christians who've done so. Christians have been reading the Bible and thinking about these texts for thousands of years. And here's the simple answer, guys. In the history of the Christian church, the universally accepted position in every single branch of the church, Protestant and Catholic, for two millennia, not a couple hundred years, a couple thousand years, basically up until 1960s, every single branch of the church, not to mention the Christian church. We're also talking about the Mormon church. We would also be talking about uh, Islamic followers. Every branch of a standard religious practice has held the same traditional stance on human sexuality, that there are boundary zones in which sex is to take place. And that boundary is to between a man and a woman inside the confines of marriage. That's true historically. It's true across all denominational lines. It's really, friends, not until the late 20th century with the rise of the LGBTQ movement connected to civil and social activism where we begin to see people change the way they read biblical texts. They didn't change them because of a new discovery related to the text of scripture. They changed them because of shifting morality in the broader culture. It wasn't that we discovered some new meaning of a Greek word. It was that the culture around us told us it was not acceptable to hold what we had held as Christians for millennia. And so in order to maintain popularity with the culture around them, Christians shifted their viewpoint, not because it was demanded by scripture, but because it wasn't popular with culture. So here's the summary. The clear teaching of scripture that has been held historically by Christians is very, very simple. Sexual activity is to occur between a man and a woman inside the confines of marriage. Homosexual activity along with heterosexual activity that violates those boundary lines is forbidden because it violates the created order that God has designed. Homosexual activity can be distinguished then from homosexual attraction. It is entirely plausible a person may feel an attraction to a pathway of sin and not act on that in pursuit of sin because the goal of gospel obedience is not to wipe away what we feel attracted to, but to call us all to obey Christ not to obey our sinful desires. Let me give you four caveats to that, and then I'm gonna take quickly a couple kind of ways I would have this conversation. So four caveats. Caveat number one, kind of clarifier. I wanna nuance this just a bit. I'm not saying that homosexual or same-sex attraction that one may feel makes you somehow some sort of subhuman or natural pervert because all sinful desires that run contrary to God's orders are unnatural and against God's created design. Most people who are attracted, who are men, who are attracted to women, who feel heterosexual attracted, feel it in a category of polyamory. Polyamory simply means that you can be attracted to more than one woman at one time. You can find multiple women attractive. Is that God's created design? No, God's design is one man, one woman, one flesh for life. That heterosexual attraction is against God's created design. So I wanna be careful to say, while we may feel things that are against God's created design, that doesn't uniquely single out this class of people who would experience same-sex attraction as worse than or different from others. Second careful caveat is this. I'm gonna quote from the Roman Catholic Catechism here. I think it's quite good where it says the church states that homosexual tendencies are objectively disordered, but does not consider the tendency itself as equal to sin, but a temptation towards sin. And it references James, where James says, when sin, when desire conceives, it gives birth to sin. That separates desire for sin from activity towards sin. If I walk by a bank and I think, man, I'd like to rob that place blind. It is different from walking into a bank and robbing that place blind. Activity is different from attraction. Third caveat, therefore those who experience same-sex attraction, as with any who experience a desire to engage in that which the Bible would forbid is sinful. 
are then given choices for how they will act on those sinful desires. To engage in willful, unrepentant, homosexual lifestyle is sin. So would to engage in a willful, unrepentant, polyamorous, multiple partners, heterosexual lifestyle. That would be sin. And the call of the gospel is to turn from sin to follow Jesus. Which means fourth, the call of the gospel is not a call to forsake homosexuality to become a heterosexual. The call of the gospel is to obey Jesus. Which is why I would encourage you to reject things like ex-gay or conversion therapies. Why? Because the Bible never endorses that. Because the goal of gospel is not the reprogram of our sexual desires. The goal of our gos- the gospel is holiness before Jesus. You can live a holy life as a same-sex attracted person. You can. You can live a full and beautiful life as a same-sex attracted person. Because the goal of your life is not to become heterosexual. The goal of your life is to obey Jesus in everything, even if it's painful to say no to yourself to do that. So let's talk briefly and then I'll answer a few questions. Very, 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 very fast. What would I say to someone who, in this room, I'm sure there are those who struggle with same-sex attraction. I've talked to many of my friends. I have a number of friends who this is their story. Sam Albury, who I referenced, Rosaria Butterfield, Christopher Yuan, Jackie Hill Perry, to name a few, are examples of Christian writers who all write from the perspective of having lived inside of or grown up with only experiencing same-sex attraction and who are living faithful lives to Christ. Most of my friends, when I've started talking to them, they say, Mark, I just don't understand. It just feels so natural to me. I know a number of people who I love dearly who've never experienced sexual attraction to a person of a different gender. They've only experienced same-sex attraction. They didn't ask for that. They didn't pursue that. It is what feels natural to them. And they'll say something like this when I first talk to them. Mark, what you're telling me is that I have to kill a piece of me that is so natural and real to me that just feels so cruel. How can Jesus be good news for me if I have to kill this part of me? Well, I wanna explain the good news of Jesus briefly. God created everything good, but when sin comes into God's good creation, what was once good is broken. And so now into God's good world, we have all sorts of disorders. Why do we have cancer? Why are babies born stillborn? Why do babies have genetic abnormalities? Why are some of us, I'm even certain, genetically hardwired toward addictions and sin patterns that will destroy us? The answer is not God's good creation. The answer is the fall. The sin curse affects all of us all the way down to our bones. So we should not be surprised that we find very natural desiring things that God forbids. You know what the Bible calls that part of us? It calls it our sinful flesh, our sinful nature, and all of us are born with it. We're born both made in the image of God, but also made in the image of Adam, our father who's fallen. So we experience the the brokenness of creation, but into that story of brokenness, God has written a story of love. He sent his son, Jesus, who lived a life we couldn't live and died the death we should die as sinners so that he can give us forgiveness for offending God's law, but even more so, he can give us the presence of God's spirit to help us to live in God's ways. And one day Jesus promises he will come back and he will make everything new. And the biblical story invites you to turn from your pattern of living, to turn from following yourself and your sin to embrace Jesus. And here's what that looks like. I want you to imagine that this this water bottle represents my old way of living before Jesus. And my iPhone 13 Pro with the big cameras (laughs) represents salvation in Christ, following Jesus. Here's the invitation of the gospel. Jesus says, if anyone wants to come for me, I need him to repent, to turn from your sin to embrace Jesus by faith. You know what that looks like? Here's my old life, and I say, Jesus, I want you. See, the problem is I can't grab onto him if my hands are still holding onto my sin. And so to embrace Jesus, I have to do two things that are actually one thing. I have to do this. I have to let go of my sin so that I can embrace the Savior. 
That's incredible. It landed right on the top. Okay. You see that? How did that happen? Look. So, if you're my friend who's struggling with same-sex attraction, here's what I want to say. The call of the gospel is for you. It is to let go of sin, to embrace something better, more beautiful, and more good in Jesus. He offers you true intimacy. Our culture tells you that the only intimacy that you can really find is sexual, and if you don't experience it, you're less than human. But the heroes of the Christian faith were single and celibate. The fullest expression of human life was experienced by Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who lived as a single, sexless man. The hero of our faith. Which means when the world tells you if you're not really having sex, you're not really living, the world is lying. Jesus offers you an intimacy with him and an intimacy inside the family of God where you have brothers and sisters and you care about one another. He offers you a true identity that's better than a sexual identity label. Oh, friends, he offers you something that's so much more powerful than saying that you're gay or straight. He offers you this statement. You can say, I'm a man in Christ. I'm a woman in Christ. I'm loved by the Father. I'm sealed by the Spirit. I am known by the Son. He offers you a name that is a better inheritance. So why would you cheapen your birthright by putting a label on yourself other than the best label you could ever have? I am his and he is mine. He offers you a better identity. He offers you true freedom. The world is lying to you. It's saying that freedom is the freedom to do whatever you want to do, but that's not freedom. Freedom is not the freedom to do whatever I want to do. Freedom is the ability to do what I ought to do. It's not to do what I could do. It's to do what I should do. True freedom is to look at someone and love them. That's freedom. And Jesus offers you a true destiny in heaven. And so here's the key. I want you to embrace Jesus. I'm not asking you to exchange your homosexuality for heterosexuality. I don't know if God will change that desire. I suspect for many people here, he won't. I know many examples of friends of mine who walk faithfully with Jesus experiencing those desires. Here's what I can tell you though. Jesus is offering you something better than switching from homosexuality to heterosexuality. He's offering you eternal life. He's not offering to change your sexual orientation. He's offering to make you a new person. And if he changes that, praise be to his name. And if he doesn't, he's good enough to walk with you. He's enough. Some of you in this room, you're saying, that's not my story, but I love my friend who struggles. How do I love them? You're being told in the culture that you have a binary choice of hate or celebrate. And I wanna say, actually, You're gonna have to face this tension, Christian. You have to live in a more difficult place. You have to live with conviction and compassion. Conviction and compassion, which means you have to reject some things. You have to reject hate and homophobia. Just so we know, hatred is forbidden in scripture, okay? So this whole sort of like Jesus, John Wayne culture where we mock gay people as Christians is sub-Christian in a distinct denial of the teachings of Christ. How dare we think that Jesus would endorse bullying and hatred? You have to reject hate. We're called to honor all men, period. Whether they agree with us, look like us, think like us, or date like us, we honor everyone. That's what it means to be a Christian. We also have to reject not only hate, but we need to reject an evangelical obsession with marriage and sex. Good golly, people, it's fine to get married, but it's not gonna make you a full person. And if you think you need to get a spouse to get a full person, once you get married, you'll figure out just how much of a lie that is. You are a full person the instant you meet Jesus and start following him. And if he gives you the good gift of a partner in life, praise be his name, but you don't need that to be a full human being. You're already one in him. We need to reject treating homosexuality as a separate class of sin that is different from all others. How dare we as sinful people who know what it's like to struggle with sin look down our nose at people who struggle too? And we need to reject seeing sexual orientation as the goal. Christopher Yuan in his book tells a story of a mother who was bemoaning. She said, I just want my son to be normal. He just moved in with his boyfriend. I want my son to be normal. Yuan writes, I knew this woman had two sons, one of whom was living 
in fornication with a woman that he was not married to. He had had children with outside of wedlock, and yet she's weeping with me over her homosexual son who's not normal. Here's what that told him. What? She thought homosexuality was bad, but she was kind of fine with her son screwing around with his girlfriend. No. The call of the gospel is not heterosexual, bisexual, homosexual, but holy sexuality. So we need to reject that. We need to embrace a few things. We need to embrace honor and respect, loving our neighbor. We need to embrace listening before we yell. Friends, I wanna build a bridge before I wanna win an argument. So when I sit down with my friends who've told me about coming out of the closet, that would be so hard. So I just cry with them. It's really hard, right? It's tough to figure out that path. I can empathize and care for a person without agreeing with everything they do. I can do that. I can listen. I can pray with patience. And I can gently share the truth as God gives me opportunity. Listen, here's the reality. If you don't love your friend, be quiet about your belief about Jesus. People often use the example of Jesus in John chapter 8, the woman caught in adultery. Hey, the one of us who's without sin, you can cast the first stone but most people stop and they don't tell the full story. Do you remember when Jesus comes to that woman, he lifts her up by the hand, he says, look, are there any people around here? Then neither do I condemn you. Then what is the last thing Jesus says to that woman? Therefore go and sin no more. He didn't embrace her life of adultery. He saved her from the physical penalty of death so that he would have the opportunity to save her from the eternal penalty of living in her sin and going to hell. If you love your friend, you will have to be honest. And that will mean you'll have to live in a difficult place of conviction and compassion, where you both love a person, but you cannot affirm and celebrate things that would be inside of that sexual identity. Guys, I've already gone 45 minutes, but I'm gonna get into a couple questions here because there's so many good ones. So I'm gonna start this one. How do I share the gospel with my openly gay friend and family member? Um, How would you share the gospel with your greedy family member? How would you share the gospel with your hateful family member? You see, I I don't think you need to build a unique bridge to homosexuality. You just need to take people, cut a hole in the roof and get them to Jesus. So the way I share the gospel with my friends and tell them, I said like, hey, would you come to church with me? And then I talk about what we saw. So here's the key. You don't actually need a different methodology for how you share the gospel with a gay person with how you share the gospel with a straight person because it's the same good news for every person regardless of their sexual identity, okay? Um, I struggle with exclusive same-sex attraction. Would it be appropriate to pursue a relationship with someone of the opposite sex? If so, how should I relay that information? Um, I would want you to have a friend or a mentor who would help you processing that through. I've walked with some of my friends through that. One of them who's only experienced same-sex attraction, he entered into a dating relationship. He was honest with the girl entering into it and said, I'm attracted to you in the sense that I really enjoy our time together, but I don't feel sexual attraction, but but perhaps... That develops in time. See, C.S. Lewis one time, he said, one of our big problems is that we disorder our loves. So if you think of love, you have one love that is uh, phylos, it's friendship love. Another, it's eros, it's sexual love. The problem with most of us is we predominantly operate in the dating, uh, like a region of our lives, driven by sexual more than friendship. Here's the reason I know that, because you could walk in a room, never talk to somebody, and instantly select the four people you would consider dating. What possible judgment could you have made of their character? You went, I could make out with him, 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 him. Okay, yeah. What are you leading with? Eros, not phileo. And so, if you're same-sex attracted, what I would wanna say is, actually, I have found often that the deepest sorts of eros, of passionate, love develop out of depth of friendship first. And the further I go in marriage, the more I think Eros goes away over time. Because there's no such thing as a sexy 50-year-old. But I plan on making out with my wife and having sex with her well into our 70s and 80s, God willing. I have no problem with that. We're married, okay? So somebody, I'm sorry about that. You're like, oh my goodness, my grandparents... 
Don't think about it that personally, but look, look, that's gonna happen. But what's that gonna tell you? That means there can be eros far after physicality is driving that equation, right? Why? Because actually the most incredibly potent thing in the world is to be known and loved by your best friend in the world who says you're beautiful to me. Maybe God would develop that. So you could consider pursuing that, but you don't have to. You can live a full and free life as a single adult too. You just have to figure out what the best path would do and you'll need some wisdom to guide you. I wanna to get to one other one which comes up a lot um, in terms of, of this. This one has to do with weddings and family members and can I attend? Um, on this one, I'm getting, Sam Albury gives some incredible advice on that one. He said, um, he said, if you've been really clear on your Christian conviction, showing up at a wedding is not going to be an endorsement, okay? So I have friends that I would absolutely go to their same-sex wedding, but that's because they absolutely know. They watch me teach these breakouts and hate when I do it, and they sit down with me, yell at me, and we get, hug it out, you know? So they're not unclear at all about what I think the Bible teaches, but for many of you, let's, let's be honest, guys, you haven't been that honest with your friends. So you want to be in the standpoint of kind of basically acting like you're totally okay with everything because you don't want the uncomfort, uncomfortable thing inside your relationship. If you haven't been honest with your friend, then actually attending the wedding, they will assume is your endorsement. So I, I think that that can give you a general principle to follow there. I'll give you this last one. Why does it seem like adultery, divorce, greed, idolatry aren't condemned as much as Christians often do with homosexuality? because we're pretty sinful people. Because it's a lot easier for me to point out the sins that I don't experience than to look in the mirror and be honest with what I struggle with. That's why. Because the church, this side of heaven, the bride of Christ is always limping, not always beautiful. And so the simple answer there is Christians can be hypocrites too because we're not in heaven yet, so we're still sinners. If we were consistent, Christians, one of the best things we could do to help our same-sex attracted brothers and sisters and to be a representation of the gospel is not to pick and choose the sins we confront, but just let the Bible direct what holiness looks like. And when the Bible talks about it, you talk about it. Whether it's heterosexual sin, homosexual sin, greed, but it's incredibly easy in America because the sort of sins that we don't confront are the sins that we find normal. I've never, in my lifetime as a pastor, had a person come up to me and confess greed. My church is full of greedy people because we're more comfortable with that sin. That's to our shame. So here's my final word to you. You gotta get to your next breakout, run. Okay. <laughs> my final word to you, why do we talk about all of this? Because Jesus is more important than your sexual identity. We talk about this because Jesus is important and his word is important and it is an unavoidable issue for you to be a faithful Christian, to figure out how can I hold to biblical conviction and yet also do it in a way that is full of compassion. So God bless you guys as you try to walk in that tension. It's not an easy path, but to walk with Jesus never really is. But as you walk it, it's a path of faithfulness where you can both hold firm to Christ and love your neighbor. God bless you guys. Hopefully you got something of good and grace out of this. And thanks for being here at the SALT Conference.